caring for people with dementia is complex and costs the health system in Canada 15 billion annually. Studies suggest that the care of people living with dementia and their caregivers is not optimal and has room for improvement. I'm Donald McCauley, Associate Editor with the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm speaking with one of the authors of a review article published in CMAJ on the care of community-dwelling older adults with dementia and their caregivers. Dr. Dallas Seitz is a psychiatrist and health services researcher. He is also Associate Professor and Chair of the Division of Geriatric Psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Seitz is joining me today from Kingston, Ontario to discuss his article. Uh, Hi, Dallas. Welcome to CMAJ Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. This is a big issue for lots of us in in community practice in particular, and there's a lot of concern about the care of older adults with dementia and, of course, the people who look after them. So tell us a little bit about the the prevalence of dementia in Canada. Yeah, well, the the best estimates we have right now of the prevalence of dementia is that there's about 550 to 600,000 individuals who are currently affected by dementia. And um, given that age is one of the biggest risk factors for dementia and our population is aging, it's expected that this number is going to triple in the future. So uh, we already have quite a few people affected by dementia and and certainly are going to feel um, increasing numbers of, of individuals who are going to be presenting for care and support in the future. This is an interesting point. Is the prevalence likely to increase? Are we increasing our sensitivity to diagnosis? Are more people getting dementia? Or is the population just aging? What's your view on this? Well, it's, a, it's actually uh, complex. I think the, the biggest thing driving the, the increase in the prevalence of dementia is you know, the increase in baby boomers and, and uh, older, older adults. We know uh, by the time you hit uh, age 85, for example, which is one of the fastest growing parts of our, our population, it's close to a third of people have Alzheimer's disease or another type of, of dementia. So it, it does seem to be, um, you know, truly increasing. Uh, I do think we're getting more um, attuned and diagnosing more people with dementia appropriately, um, uh, which is probably increasing the numbers of people who are who are being identified uh, perhaps earlier with dementia uh, interestingly, some of the research on the epidemiology of dementia has shown that although the prevalence of dementia is increasing because of the aging of our population, if you look at the age-specific incidence of dementia, comparing people who are 85 years old today compared to a generation ago, the actual risk for an individual getting dementia is going down. And it's not known exactly why uh, the incidence of dementia is going down, but it's thought to be related to uh, improvements or reductions in risk factors for dementia, like our overall levels of education are going up, and uh, the prevalence of cardiovascular disease, which is a major risk factor for for Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia, those are going down in the population. And so we are seeing that the uh, the incidence of dementia may be decreasing, uh, but certainly the rise in prevalence is is going to outstrip this reduction in the incidence of dementia over time. I'm very interested in what you said about prevention, but but let's let's let me can we focus a little bit just on the diagnosis because one of the things you mentioned was about earlier diagnosis. How good are we at diagnosis? What tools do we have at our disposal to make this diagnosis? Yeah, so in terms of uh, how good we are at at diagnosis, uh, I think we we have um, uh, reasonably accurate tools. 
that can be used in community-based or primary care um, practices for um, screening for for dementia, which have uh, you know reasonable sensitivity and specificity. The screening tools have to be coupled with and used, of course, in in the right context um, with a you know proper. Uh, interview from a patient and a caregiver, uh, investigations to rule out uh, potential uh, remediable causes of cognitive impairment like medical conditions or substances and, and medications, um, and a review of a med- medical history for medical conditions that might be contributing to, to cognitive impairment. But we do have um, tools at our disposal are, um, again, re- reasonably easy to use. And uh, and accurate for uh, identifying people with uh, people with dementia. I think one of the challenges with uh, identifying dementia is the the approach um, in in terms of uh, whether you screen uh, an entire population uh, or, uh, as we've suggested in the article and and research would suggest, taking more of a a, a targeted or case finding approach uh, where. Uh, you initiate investigations and evaluations for dementia uh, when there's something about the patient or the caregiver that suggests there may be a higher probability of a, a dementia being present. Those might be well-known risk factors for dementia, things like uh, stroke or uh, neurological illness, or uh, perhaps a, a presentation uh, later in life with symptoms such as forgetfulness, functional difficulties, or sometimes uh, a late onset of um, psychiatric symptoms, uh, which may indicate an underlying dementia. I remember a number of years ago, there was great excitement about the potential for uh, pharmacology and for drugs to improve the outcomes of dementia. And of course, that turned out to be a bit of a disappointment. So tell me, what do you think are, are the benefits of early diagnosis and why, why should we really make an effort to make an early diagnosis? Well, I think uh, there's several reasons for uh, establishing an early diagnosis. When when you spoke, speak to most people and caregivers uh, who are affected by dementia, uh, they want to know uh, if what they're experiencing uh, is a dementia or what is causing their memory difficulties. And so uh, understanding what, what might be causing some of their symptoms uh, can provide... Uh, uh, some relief and understanding uh, as to what might be uh, might be going on. You're quite right. The the current available uh, pharmacotherapies for dementia do have modest uh, modest effects, but they do have effects. So it it is important to uh, try to identify people who might benefit from medications and try to initiate medications as as soon as it's it's possible. I would say though, uh, just because our current pharmacotherapy for dementia are somewhat limited doesn't mean there isn't a lot that can be done to help people with dementia. And the mainstay of treating dementia is actually other people. It's supports and services for people with dementia. And so diagnosing dementia early uh, and identifying uh, both medications, but more importantly, the supports and services for people with dementia and their caregivers uh, is really crucial in order to support them as well as it can uh, for as long as possible. The other thing with dementia is that as uh, dementia progresses 
an individual's capability to be as active in expressing their desire for support, services, future plans, that gets impaired over time in people with dementia. And so the earlier you can diagnose people with dementia, the more involved they can be in guiding their own care and, uh, and their own expressed wishes, uh, which may be more difficult later on you know, when their cognitive abilities to sort of understand and appreciate the things that might be uh, best for their particular situation might be might be compromised. So I think there's a number a number of reasons, and uh, truthfully, uh, I would say most of the people I see in my practice uh, who are uh, diagnosed with dementia, they uh, quickly move from receiving the diagnosis to uh, an action oriented phase. Well, now now that we know what it is, what can we do about it? And I think that that part of the conversation is really um, you know, what is is beneficial for for people to have that as early on as possible. Can I bring you back, Dallas, just to your description of the modest effects of the of medication? Because as clinicians, we're often under pressure to prescribe. So, can you give me a feel for what we can say to patients about the likelihood of benefit? My understanding, and I don't want to be terribly pessimistic, is that the medications have very minimal benefit. Yeah, so the currently available medications, uh, which include uh, two classes of cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine, and certainly have uh, the most um, uh, evidence for cholinesterase inhibitors. Uh, my interpretation of the uh, research literature on cholinesterase inhibitors are, um, you know, compared to placebo or, or no treatment, about 30% of people will have a temporary stabilization in their memory, uh, often for uh, you know a period of six to nine months. A smaller portion of individuals will actually have an improvement uh, in their memory, uh, perhaps around ten percent, and then uh, a number of individuals will have less less benefit from the medications. Uh, it's really difficult to identify in advance who are going to be those individuals who are going to experience. The benefit in terms of the um, uh, stabilization of cognition or improvement. And so it is really recommended that uh, people at least be offered uh, treatment with the cholinesterase um, inhibitors. So while they do have modest, uh, modest effects, uh, I do think that uh, it's important to, to uh, you know, be aware of the, the risks and benefits of the medications and uh, be prepared to have a discussion with, um, with the person who's affected by dementia and their family members. Most families I talk to, when I give them those types of numbers, along with the discussion of the potential side effects, most of which are not serious, uh, do opt to proceed with uh, treatment because they want to be doing everything that they feel they can to uh, try and keep their cognition as best as they can for as long as possible. So let's discuss the early diagnosis. So I'm sitting in the consultation with you, Dallas, and you've prepared to say that I have mild cognitive impairment and you think it's the early stages of dementia. So what, what should I do next? What, what is your advice to me as the patient sitting in front of you? What, what are the steps I should do? Yeah, so in, in addition to, uh, you know, uh, perhaps a discussion about medications, and that's not um, certainly the focus of the discussion, and, and I work in a geriatric psychiatry outreach program, um, so, you know, in terms of uh, general lifestyle um, recommendations, uh, we always talk about things like uh, looking at a heart-healthy diet, um, you know, 
lots of fruits and vegetables, um, staying away from uh, saturated fat, ensuring that uh, people remain physically active, both for their physical health, but also for uh, to help with their cognition, although the relationship between exercise and cognition is, is quite complex. I try to counsel people to try and remain cognitively active as possible, and preferably doing enjoyable social activities, which have the benefit of, of helping people's mood, uh, but also stimulate a number of different parts of the brain, like memory, um, social skills, uh, language. So looking at those lifestyle uh, type factors. Um, then for each individual, it's really quite personalized in terms of what things may be both available for them and which may be more most helpful for them at an early stage. So typically for someone who is uh, diagnosed with very mild dementia uh, or very early on, um, we would uh, make a recommendation that a referral be considered to the Alzheimer's Society. The Alzheimer's Societies have a number of very useful programs, um, some of which are, are geared to the person with dementia in terms of uh, teaching, uh, you know, skills and approaches and, and future planning uh, for themselves, but also importantly, programs and supports and training for, for their family members or care partners who uh, benefit from this type of uh, information. One thing we also review at the time of diagnosis is um, making sure that medical conditions and psychiatric conditions, if they're present, are being optimally managed. Most of the people that we see with dementia are in their uh, uh, 70s and 80s when they're diagnosed. And so in ensuring that they have good general medical care and that we're, uh, we're treating and, and managing uh, any psychiatric uh, conditions which um, may be present is, is important. And we focus a lot on, on safety as well, ensuring that you know, issues such as you know, driving safety, household safety, such as you know, cooking or uh, possibility of um, wandering or injury, that those things are being reviewed and discussed. It's also extremely important um, most of the time when we have someone presenting for an evaluation for the memory, they'll have a family member or a care partner who's there with them to support them. Uh, but And when we do, ensuring that uh, that person's needs are met in terms of uh, supports for the care partner, ensuring the care partner is um, receiving uh, you know appropriate medical care for themselves, because that's one of the first things that they often neglect is their own health and their own uh, medical and uh, and mental health, and so really uh, trying to also assess and support uh, the needs of the caregiver, uh, who are you know key in supporting the person with with dementia, and um, and really important to keep them healthy and and well supported. In terms of the the cares, this is a, a big issue for people in the community. What services are available? Is there respite care for the patient? What can carers access in the community to help them survive the the difficulties of managing a close relative, for example, with dementia? Yeah, it it varies quite a bit across the country. So I I would be speaking. Uh, you know, about um, services are available in most places, but also bringing my own perspective from, from Ontario. One of the key supports for uh, caregivers is the Alzheimer's Society. Uh, and uh, again, the, the Alzheimer's Societies 
uh, and many of whom have uh, what's called a first link program, uh, which involves sort of a uh, introduction to uh, dementia supports and services. They provide very useful information uh, to help uh, caregivers understand uh, the changes that are going on with dementia. I find uh, one of the things that's uh, extremely uh, helpful for care partners in terms of uh, supports they can receive from the Alzheimer's Society or through other other programs is training or an understanding of ways to uh, approach communication with people with dementia uh, because your your approach to communication with an individual with dementia although it's it's still your same relative because of the cognitive changes it's it's important to uh, sometimes shift um, the style that you communicate or the type of information that is that is communicated to uh, take into account the cognitive difficulties and also to um, ensure you're having a, a successful interaction with an individual and, and getting some support and training around that uh, can really you know be helpful in terms of relieving stress and frustration for the caregiver and the person with dementia. The Alzheimer's Society programs also have a, a lot of uh, a peer support programs. I think there's there's validation that comes from you know learning that uh, others are experiencing similar situation as you, but also a lot of knowledge that is shared uh, uh, from a lived experience uh, that people have figured out or tips and tricks that they share at these caregiver support groups, which can be very helpful. So that would be a one of the first um, you know recommendations that that we would make is a referral to to the Alzheimer's Society or at least to the resources of the Alzheimer's Society if if people decide that they're not ready to make an in-person visit at first. Now, depending on the person with dementia, they may or may not need medical support or support with personal care. So dementia uh, can affect things like mobility and and self-care. Uh, and also the comorbid medical conditions that are frequent in older people can also impact on functioning in that way. Often that care can fall on caregivers or or, or family members who um, may not be uh, available to complete this care or may not feel comfortable or that they truthfully have the skills uh, to to do this care. And so connecting caregivers with home care services or supports that can help with some of the physical care needs of their um, their loved one can be very helpful. Ensuring that the caregiver's mental uh, health uh, is maintained and the, their stress is um, minimized is, is also important. And, and one of the key things is trying to help caregivers to maintain their connections to their social lives, their hobbies and activities, their other family members, their ability to to take care of their own health and attend medical appointments. And also as a loved one develops dementia, an increasing load of household duties falls upon the care partner. And so looking for opportunities to provide a respite for the caregiver so they have time available from uh, directly supervising or supporting the person with dementia to be able to take care of their own needs or uh, increased uh, demands on them at home is really important. And that can be everything from uh, someone from a ho home care agency or a volunteer agency coming into the home to spend time with the person with dementia, which can also be very beneficial in terms of providing uh, social contact and stimulation for the person with dementia. 
other forms of respite, such as adult day programs, where a person with dementia may go uh, in a morning to an activities program, uh, have a meal there, uh, an enjoyable day in a supervised environment where the uh, caregiver uh, is then able to have some time to themselves or some time uh, outside of the house to take care of um, take care of activities. And uh, another thing that's very helpful for for caregivers is having a really a quarterback or a point person in the in the healthcare system that's helping put all this together. In most places, the people who are delivering home care and organizing the adult day programs, uh, medical care, the family doctor, and the Alzheimer's Society are all separate organizations. And so knowing what supports and services are available, how they might be helpful, how to connect with them and when to connect with them, it's really hard for a caregiver to do on their own. And it takes a lot of time if you're not familiar with the system. So um, having a care manager or someone on a healthcare team who can be that point person and and help organize supports and services and connect them to the caregiver in a timely fashion can be extremely helpful for for caregivers. And do, do these people exist? Where would a carer find someone like that to help coordinate the system? I, I think in different areas, we see different agencies taking on this role. So um, in uh, some jurisdictions, uh, for example, in uh, in Quebec and uh, outside of, of Quebec, they've looked at having a, a nursing resource in a primary care setting who becomes sort of the dementia point person to, to help with this. Uh, I think some of these roles are managed by the Alzheimer's Society First Link uh, coordinators and, and support programs. The My own program, which is a geriatric psychiatry case management program, this is uh, a large part of what uh, what we do. I, uh, uh, as a consultant on the team, have a very small role compared to our nurses who are, are really um, the brokers and advocate for the patient and family members and spend the majority of their time uh, making connections and mobilizing services uh, for, for people with dementia. So I think these roles are can be provided by different individuals in different um, different sectors, and not all places would have these available. But I, I certainly think that uh, if we want to look at research evidence, um, having a a care manager or a point person to organize care, and we we see this also in other complex chronic conditions like cancer, it's really been shown to be one of the most effective and cost effective. Uh, interventions or supports that um, can be helpful for people with dementia. Sadly, it's a condition that almost inevitably gets worse. And my experience and practice is that the most difficult period of time is that period of time just before residential accommodation becomes necessary. It's that time where the care feels guilty and upset and the patient becomes more and more difficult to manage. What's your advice at that stage? What is your threshold for admission? At what stage should, should the caregiver say, look, I just can't manage anymore. It's time for residential accommodation. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult um, you know, situation uh, and really different for each, uh, you know, each individual. We certainly see people who um, you know, early on in, in the dementia journey, are uh, really uh, you know struggling with uh, the change in role because of a uh, 
their availability and others who uh, are able to uh, completely avoid uh, long-term care uh, admission. Uh, you know, when I feel that, you know, there's significant safety issues in the home because of uh, resources that are, are available either from the family or the community um, that are, are, are not going to be, uh, you know, sufficient to provide uh, support and supervision for the person with dementia. I think that that's one of the, you know, the key things um, that I get concerned concerned about. Certainly, a, a caregiver who uh, seems to be experiencing a, a you know a great deal of distress, which uh, uh, even after all supports have been mobilized and everything's been done to to sort of optimize care in the community setting, um, has not been enough to to relieve distress and it's really having an impact on an individual's quality of life. I think that's important. Certainly, uh, when an individual's care needs, physical care needs you know, become more than, than what a caregiver can manage at home. That is also a time uh, for, um, you know, for consideration of, of long-term care if, if those care needs can't be met by community services. So, um, you know, it may be uh, the person with dementia having more difficulties with things like bathing or incontinence, um, which can be very difficult for caregivers uh, where they may need admission to uh, long-term care. There may be um, uh, behaviors such as uh, difficulties with sleep or other changes in, in mood, which um, um, may be very difficult to, to manage uh, at home without significant support. So it's, it's really uh, quite variable on, a, on, a, on an individual. But, um, you know, I think it's important to, to have those discussions early on. And I often frame the discussion with, with caregivers and family members if I'm Starting to feel that we're we're getting to a getting to a stage where um, that might be more of a difficulty or or moving towards long term care. I often will ask a, a caregiver, a care partner, about how will they know when the time might might have come uh, for them to um, you know consider a long term care admission, and and sometimes they'll be able to say, well, if I'm not able to, uh, you know, if a person needs a, a lot of hands-on personal care, I don't think I'll be able to manage that on, on my own. Or if, uh, you know, wandering becomes an issue, I'm not sure I'll be able to manage that anymore on my own. At least gets uh, caregivers and, the, and their team thinking about some of the signs that we may be having to move towards those directions before you get to a, a complete crisis or situation where the support system is really broken down because we've waited too long. One of the other issues I'd like to ask you about, Dallas, just for your guidance, is that often there's a difficulty deciding on mental capacity to make a will. What advice do you give to patients and at what stage do you think they should make a will? And how do you judge if someone has the mental capacity to make a will? Uh, well, so it's a complex, you know, situation with wills, and and there's also, uh, you know, di provincial differences uh, in this. I think one of the benefits, again, of early diagnosis, is really having uh, discussions around um, advanced care planning, around things like wills, powers of attorney, um, th those types of uh, legal documents and arrangements, and early on uh, in dementia. Most people would retain their ability to be able to make those legal decisions. Uh, things like a will are usually the capacity 
to um, actually assign a will is often made between the the individual who's making the will and the other parties to it, often their lawyer. And so the decision around capacity sometimes falls to the legal, more the legal perspective than the medical perspective. But some of the things that I, I look at when trying to understand someone's um, potential capability around uh, finances and wills are, um, do they understand you know, what a will is? Do they understand uh, who their beneficiaries uh, of of the will, uh, you know, could be, and what the implications for that might be. Uh, what's their understanding and appreciation of their uh, their current legal situation in terms of things like their income and expenses, and the extent of their estate. So those are things that I I look at and and sort of consider with an individual uh, when there's a, a will. I also, you know, things certainly get more complex. And um, and formalized uh, in situations where there's perhaps a much much more complicated financial estate uh, or planning involved, uh, where the capacity to understand and appreciate the implications of a will might be very different than a simple estate. And uh, also, um, you know, if there's any sort of conflict between you know spouses or children or people who might be beneficiaries then that becomes a, a little bit more complicated in terms of understanding an individual's capacity to be able to assign a will and, and understand the implications, um, the implications of that. But the best thing is to really discuss that as early as possible with a patient uh, and have them assign a, you know, wills, powers of attorney, you know, any of their advanced care directives as early as possible while they uh, still have um, have their capacity rather than waiting later on where it may be more difficult to understand or assess um, capacity. Earlier in our conversation, we discussed prevention. <laughs> and we read lots of articles about prevention and suggestions that we should be doing crossword puzzles, we should be keeping fit, we should be learning a language. What are your, what are your suggestions on prevention? What can you and I do, Dallas, to make sure we don't end up as one of your patients? Well, the first thing is don't wind up as one of my patients with depression. <laughs> so depression uh, and mental health has a you know, has a strong relationship uh, to to dementia. But that 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 aside, I think you know in terms of things that are modifiable risk factors for for dementia, really looking at you know cardiovascular health. So things like everything that we would counsel to prevent strokes and heart attacks really applies to to dementia being physically active, meeting at least the minimum uh, recommendations around exercise, eating those heart-healthy diets, uh, you know, trying to have, uh, again, enjoyable social activities, keeping your mind active. Part of this is is building reserve and building a healthy, strong mind. So uh, having uh, education and, um, you know, trying to engage in cognitively stimulating hobbies uh, and the work environment uh, throughout the lifespan, and then later on trying to maintain cognitively challenging activities. In terms of things like, um, you know, brain games uh, and, and brain training, I, th I think the evidence right now is a bit mixed because uh, there's a variety of approaches that have, have been looked at. Uh, my, my general recommendation to people is to uh, try and keep their mind active with something that's enjoyable. So if they enjoy crossword puzzles or um, doing puzzles or hobbies or playing bridge, you know, encourage them to do that. 
engaging in social activities, which is quite cognitively stimulating. Um, anything that sort of keeps the mind active and um, and is enjoyable, I think, is um, you know really important to 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 look at. And uh, we know that prevention of head injuries through uh, you know accidents, falls, concussions, these are important for for maintaining brain health. Um, managing our our medical conditions, if we do happen to have things like uh, diabetes or a heart condition, really trying to optimize treatment for those because anything that is going to stress your physical or medical health is going to have an impact on your on your cognition and memory. Um, so trying to maintain um, that. We always talk about substance use as well. So, Oh, I thought I, you hadn't mentioned alcohol. So, so I was so far, I thought it was all good news. No, yeah. <laughs> so, so with, with uh, you know, alcohol, um, you know, marijuana, uh, and prescribed medications. And I, I often see uh, older adults who are uh, taking over-the-counter sleep aids, which you can walk into a pharmacy and just grab off the shelf, which can have anticholinergic effects, really trying to minimize the number of medications which can have an adverse impact on the brain, both from uh, a prescribed and over-the-counter perspective, and also trying to um, you know minimize the use of alcohol and other substances which can have... Um, an impact on on brain functioning. I certainly counsel my patients who have cognitive symptoms to um, minimize their use of alcohol uh, as, uh, to as little as possible, uh, and for people who don't have um, cognitive symptoms to try and maintain, you know, their drinking uh, to a, a safe level for for seniors, which is different than for for younger people. So we'll finish off here now. We talked really, it's very much a focus on, on community dwelling adults and care in the community. So if you, if you could give, I mean, this is so important for our family medicine colleagues. Would you have a, a one minute message for our family medicine colleagues about dementia in the community? Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, number one, um, there's a lot of things that can be done to help people with dementia. And I think uh, understanding um, and, and knowing about the local supports and services that can be helpful for the patient and um, and the caregiver is really important. And I want to emphasize the uh, benefit that can come from a uh, you know a compassionate diagnosis and really trying to proactively uh, connect people with those supports and services as as early as possible can really have a big impact, uh, a big long term impact on the patient and the caregiver. If anything, I want to uh, instill a bit of optimism um, that there is a lot that can be done to help people with dementia. And um, while the medications may not uh, be that um, you know robust in terms of their effects, there's a whole host of other things that can have very clinically and important uh, impact on people with dementia and their caregivers aside from medications that we should probably really bring to the forefront of our, of our thoughts when we're thinking about dementia management and, and supports. Dallas, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've learned an awful lot. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Donald. I've been speaking with Dr. Dallas Seitz, a psychiatrist, associate professor and chair of the Division of Geriatric Psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Seitz co-authored a review article published in CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcast in Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, we invite you to listen to our many past episodes and leave us a rating. 
I'm Donald McCauley, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.